Hear the word of God from John 21. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. John 21, 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and, and state what I think is obvious here. This is a strange way for John to end his gospel, isn't it? I mean, think about this. At the very beginning of this account in John 21, we have Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other guys, right? If we started back in John 1, where these guys start popping up for the first time, we ask the question, what will happen to these disciples over the course of events that unfold in John's gospel. What would you have said? What would you have expected them to be doing now? I mean, they give up everything to follow this Jesus that they believe is the promised Messiah. They're ready to go and be world changers. They're willing to give up everything. I believe Jesus is going to flip the world upside down. Everything is about to change. Now they're back on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And these former fishermen, get this, you ready for this? This is, what they're, this is how they're changing the world. They're fishing. So what happened? Did nothing change? Some scholars have read this account in John 21 and they've concluded, this is a story about unbelief. I mean, look at these guys. They just went through th this wild three-year journey with Jesus. They witness him do so many incredible things. I mean, John even says in the final verse of this gospel, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But here they are, back in their old stomping grounds.
among people who have known they left everything to follow Jesus. I mean, that's one of the potential problems from being from a small town, right? Everybody else knows everything about everybody else's business. I was just talking with a friend who grew up in the same town I'm from. And, and don't get me wrong, there, there's a lot of, of really great people from, from the town I'm from. There, there's amazing people. But I hold my breath every time I go and walk through the local Walmart there because you never know who you're going to run into and you never know what they're going to ask you. And it may be asking you questions that you don't really feel like answering. It's always, it's always a chance. And so, so I'm always, like if my parents ask me, will you go pick up something at Walmart? I'm like, okay, let's do this. So some say these, these guys are failures. They have no faith. They've gone back to doing what they had always done. But have they really? Is that true? I mean, we know from Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts that an angel instructed the disciples to go to Galilee. Jesus wanted to meet them there. So let's pause on that thought for a second and consider what these guys have been through. I mean, one moment they're debating who, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, you can sense the giddiness in them, right? Hey, hey Jesus, which one of us is, is going to sit at your left hand and which one of us is going to rule from your right? I mean, they're so excited. And then Palm Sunday happens and they see all of these people praising, celebrating, singing, Jesus has arrived. That's unexpected. That's confusing. They didn't know what was going on. Then Good Friday happens, and they see Jesus arrested and crucified. He dies. Then Easter Sunday happens, and the tomb is empty. What? Can it be? Could he really be? I don't care who you are. That is a whirlwind of a week to live through. They've seen the resurrected Jesus twice. And now they're waiting in Galilee, trying to process what in the world just happened. And understand, what is next for us? And honestly, we're probably all thinking the same thing. I heard a funny story last Sunday about some parents who, who told their child it's Easter. They're explaining it's Easter. That, that means people are celebrating that, that Jesus is alive. He's risen. And the child asks, didn't Jesus do that last year? Chances are that, that many of us feel like we're in a similar boat as these disciples. We feel that. I mean, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus has risen. We believe that he's ascended. We believe that he will come again. But we still find ourselves in a world filled with sin and despair, with pain and suffering, with doubt and shame. Jesus has won the victory, but the proverbial Rome is still in control. So what do we do now? If we're honest, this story isn't what we would have expected to follow the resurrection. We don't see the, the, the Spirit moving in these disciples' lives. We don't see His conviction leading many to repentance and faith. Instead, we have a small group of ordinary fishermen, another fishing expedition. That's the story John chooses to follow the resurrection and all this belief. But let's, let's humanize these guys a little further. Let's, let's really get in. Let's dig deep a little further. Peter, you guys know Peter. Peter, Peter is impulsive, right? I mean, we see his impulsivity in verse 7. As soon as John realizes it's the Lord, 
Peter jumps into the water to swim to shore. John, John who wrote this gospel, John is more rational. He tends to think before he acts. He's processing the events that just happened, and then he realizes, oh, that, that must be the Lord. Nathaniel is impressionable. You guys remember Nathaniel from John 1, right? I mean, he says, he says what's on his mind, and he, and he also believes too quickly. I mean, Nathaniel goes very quickly from saying, can anything good come from Nazareth to, Jesus, you're the king of Israel. I mean, even, Je- even Jesus is like, you haven't even begun to see what I came to do. Slow down. And Thomas, Thomas is our resident skeptic. We just saw him last week, right? I mean, Thomas won't even remain in the fellowship with the other disciples unless he sees Jesus for himself and touches his wounds. Kind of strange, right? Do you identify with any of these guys? Impulsivity, impressionable, rational, skeptical. Are you annoyed by any of them? Perhaps you know people like them? After three years, I bet they got annoyed with each other. I mean, how do these guys coexist in the same boat, let alone be used by God to build his church? Which brings us to the theme of of this whole passage, I believe. It's only under Jesus' gracious authority will the church advance God's kingdom. Only under Jesus' gracious authority will the church advance God's kingdom. We see this authority at work in in many ways, but, but I want to focus on two of them with you. First, we, th- we see it through Jesus' gracious fellowship. And second, we see it through Jesus' gracious invitation. So first, we see this power at work through Jesus' gracious fellowship. Have you ever considered how, how certain smells or sounds or places or things can generate so much nostalgia in your life? Just like take you back? I love listening to music. My favorite band from my, my early college days was Reliant K. And full disclosure, I, I'm not ashamed of this, I still like them. I still enjoy the music. I know they're kind of poppy and, and whatever, but just, thank you. Thank you, Danny. Um, so, so, so I like Reliant K. So I, so I was dating this girl in college, and her name wasn't Sarah. And the last gift that she gave me before we broke up was a Reliant K CD. It was great. I loved it. And I used to listen to those songs on repeat all the time. I knew all the words by heart. I, I, I could sing the next song before it even started playing. I knew all the beats. I, I knew all of it. All of it. That CD became the soundtrack of my life during those painful days that would follow. It was, it was fitting that the CD was actually, a, the whole thing was about a breakup, which was, you know, perfect, right? Um, I, I don't think she planned that. Um, but sometimes, one of those songs would play randomly on my iPod as, I'm, as I was driving down the road. And it didn't matter how far removed I was from those days. All these, all these memories and emotions and, and baggage, this pain would, would all come rushing back. It just like, kind of hits you and you're like, what was that? Like, why, why is that? Like, what is, in, what is happening in me? Has this happened to any of you? Have you? Is this? No? Okay. Just, okay. So it's one, one person. Um, but now when I hear those songs, when, when I play those songs today, there, there's not the same pain tied to them anymore. But there's a sense of resolve 
that only the fullness of time can, can resolve. I mean, it's, it's no longer an incomplete story because I've lived through the experience to the end. I, I, do you know what I mean? I, mean I, I understand why the events that unfolded happened the way they did, and, and I'm thankful to God for it. I mean, He's redeemed it. He's redeemed that, that time. There's, there's no longer the same pain there. He's redeemed those songs for me. I can listen to them and see His, his, his working through me and, and walking me through that, that time, that season of life. Well, this same kind of thing is happening twice over for Peter here in John 21. This, this evoking of, of memories. First, this isn't the first time that Peter has come up empty on a fishing trip. In Luke 5, Jesus sees Simon on the shore of a lake washing his fishing nets. Jesus steps onto Simon's boat, Simon being Peter, and instructs him where to cast the net. And Simon replies in, in verse 5, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I mean, I'm tired, and I don't want to do anything else. It's been a long night. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Luke goes on to record that Simon and his companions caught so many fish that morning that their nets broke, and their ship began to sink. How did Peter respond to this? How does he respond? He says in Luke 5, 8, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Similarly, here in John 21, the disciples have spent all night fishing and come up empty. There's a sense of failure and frustration. Then a man calls out to them from the shore, addressing them with a term of endearment, friends, and instructing them to where to cast their nets. They have a huge catch, 153 fish. I don't go fishing often, but I rarely catch anything either, and so that seems like a, a huge number. But this time, the nets don't break. And it's not until they experience this huge catch that John concludes, this is the Lord. I mean, who else has such authority over the sea? As an experienced fisherman, John knows there's only one he's ever seen be able to pull off such a catch at such a time in such a way. But here's the kicker. Peter is starting to grasp the truth of the gospel. The truth of the resurrection has this kind of impact. In the first instance, Peter's confronted with Jesus' glory and his own sinfulness and concludes, we can't be in fellowship together. I can never be worthy enough to run in your circles, Jesus. I will never be good enough. But here in, verse tw here in John 21, once again, Peter's amazed by Jesus' authority over all things. But instead of insisting that Jesus leave him, he goes to Jesus. He dives off the boat. Verse 7 says he, he wrapped his outer garment around him and, and jumped into the water. Perhaps his clothing was, was indecent, but he's growing. He's starting to understand just how Jesus is saving him. Second, John 21, 9 says, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. I mean, you can imagine, you've been around, all of you have probably been around a fire before. You can imagine the, the sound, the, the smell, the, the heat giving off from, from a fire. I mean, maybe you can quickly recall some, some great camping trip or, or some, some great time of, of roasting a s'more by the bonfire. But for Peter, a fire of burning coals 
would have likely evoked some shameful memories for him. Back in John 18, on the night of Jesus' arrest, a girl recognizes Peter as he's standing around the fire with the servants and officials on duty in the high priest's courtyard. And the girl says to, to Peter in, in John 18, 17, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Peter replies, I'm not. Three times Peter denies Jesus at this fire. I don't know him. That's what Peter says. It's not only fitting that Peter responds to this miraculous catch by going to Jesus, but that in his going to Jesus, Peter will have to confront these moments of great shame for him. He doesn't need, he doesn't need Jesus to guilt trip him. Jesus is, that's not what Jesus is purposing to do. Jesus knows this. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. However, Peter now gets to address his shame under the reality that the resurrection is true. Meaning your greatest shame does not disqualify you from fellowship with Jesus anymore because the cross has undone your shame and given you new life. Peter was so certain he would remain loyal to Jesus, even if it meant his death. Sure, Peter wasn't expecting Jesus' death, but just imagine the kind of memories and emotions being around another fire would evoke for him. The kind of pain that he's experiencing. He hasn't been able to work through. And to be with the one he rejected, the very one he denied face to face. But a place of Peter's greatest failures will become a place redeemed by Jesus. The place where Peter was disloyal will become the place where Jesus will commission him to lead his church. You see? This is how the resurrection is changing everything. Jesus invites us to view our greatest sin with new eyes. Like putting on glasses, he wants you to see how the message of the gospel is changing your worldview. Yes, all the worst things you fear are true about you, are true about you. But you no longer have to fear because the resurrection disarms the humiliation of your shame and joins you to Christ those who abide in Christ will share in his joy. I mean, this is what he's been saying this whole time. It's like basking in the glory of your team winning the national championship. Except Jesus' glory will never fade. The glory of a championship, it seems like it changes, like it lasts for about three days. But Jesus' glory remains forever. In John 1:37, two of John the Baptist's disciples go after Jesus and come away saying, He's the Messiah. Andrew, Peter's brother, goes, goes and tells him, he says, you got to see this guy. We believe he's the Christ. And then Peter comes to Jesus, and, and Jesus changes Peter's name. He says, you will be called Cephas, which means rock. I'm going to use you to build my church. Now, Jesus didn't hedge his bets on Peter because of his zeal and loyalty. He didn't think, this is going to be the guy. This is, these, are, these are the key components to, to building my church. I need a guy like this. No. Jesus chose Peter knowing that Peter would be incredibly shocked and broken by his own disloyalty. But even more stunning, even more shocking than our own sin, is the friendship and fellowship Jesus offers to Peter and to us. 
Notice the first thing Jesus says to his disciples in verse 5. Friends, not what are you doing? Not have you learned nothing? Not why so little faith? But friends, children, a term of endearment. The disciples' night, I'm sure, had been a long and tiresome one. I mean, doesn't time seem to stand still when you're unproductive? They were... They had nothing to show for their night. They got nothing. But Jesus redeems their toil and is already working to serve them before they even come to him. When he sees Peter and the other disciples, he doesn't ask, why did you deny me? He didn't say, what did I tell you, Peter? No, Jesus isn't that kind of friend. Instead, he says in verse 12, come and have breakfast. This is incredible, radical, gracious fellowship. Jesus is building his church with ordinary, broken people. Only by Jesus' victory on the cross are we able to accept our brokenness and walk in freedom under his authority. You will never stop feeling broken until you accept that you are broken. Isn't that strange? And you will never come out from under all the shame your brokenness produces unless you believe that Jesus has died and risen and that you can walk in fellowship with him. Number two, we see this power at work through Jesus' gracious invitation. There's something incredibly stunning that's happening in this short fishing account. What we see ultimately is that Jesus invites his disciples and us to partake in the task that he alone makes us able to do. Now, I believe that this is an eyewitness account, meaning John is recounting an event that really happened. These are real details from a real story from a real person. But I also believe that John is being very intentional in telling this story here, that he included it. In Jesus' ministry with his disciples, fishing was, was often symbolic for evangelism. The fact that these disciples didn't catch a single fish while relying on their own strength is telling, right? Right? especially when compared to the authority of Jesus over all things. Scholar Andreas Kossenberger makes this ironic observation. Remarkably, the disciples never catch a fish in any of the Gospels without Jesus' help. Not a single one. These guys are fishermen. They don't catch any fish. So how are they fishermen? They just keep trying and, and they fail. It's Jesus that makes them the fishermen, I guess. But yet Peter's posture during this encounter is one of constant striving. I mean, in verse 3, Pete, Peter is the one who initiates going out to fish. In verse 7, after John declares it's the Lord, Peter swims to the shore, leaving the other disciples behind. We see his striving again in verse 11 when he carries the net of fish all by himself. He's trying to show his sufficiency. Before Peter could even get to the shore, Jesus already has breakfast going. You see, Jesus is showing Peter that he needs to strive in Jesus' sufficiency, not his own. The loving service of Jesus here is astounding, isn't it? So in verse 9, Jesus is preparing breakfast for his disciples. Notice that it says, they saw a fire of burning coals with, there with fish on it and some bread. We've all heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? We all know what he can do with bread and fish. And in this instance, we, we don't even know how he got the food. Doesn't, John doesn't tell us that. But then in verse 10, I love this. In verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, bring 
some of the fish you have just caught. Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Jesus is inviting Peter and the other disciples to contribute in their fellowship with him. The disciples only caught fish because of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say, bring the fish I pointed out to you, or bring the fish I helped you catch. He says, bring the fish that you caught. It was only by Jesus' authority and strength that they caught anything. The disciples still had to strive in his strength. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. About a month ago, in celebration of, of my wife's birthday, I decided to make her a cake. Now, before, before you think too highly of me or say, oh, how sweet, let me preface by saying I've never made a cake before or any kind of dessert for that matter. On top of that, my wife is an amazing baker. I mean, she's even made cakes and pies for people's weddings. That's how good she is, okay? In other words, this was a fool's errand. <laughs> but, but, I made the cake. And, and I did all the work and, and, and it mostly tasted good. And every step along the way, I would check with Sarah to make sure my progress looked like it was supposed to. Is, does this look right? Is this doing what it's supposed to be doing? But there's no way I could have put that cake together without Sarah's instruction and guidance. There's no way. I mean, I have the recipe, which she found for me. But there was one ingredient in particular that we didn't have. And so I'm thinking, well, can, can, we just, can I just go to the store and buy it? Can I go get it? She's like, no, 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 we, have a, we can do this and make a substitute for it. It's like, but I don't know how to do that. She's like, I'm going to tell you how to make the substitute. And then she told me. And me and all of my expertise questioned her. Are you sure about this? This doesn't sound right. It doesn't make sense how those could be doing the same thing in this cake. And honestly, what do I know? I don't know what they are doing in the cake. So, um, <laughs> But she was right. It all worked out. As far as I know, I mean, it's, it, it tasted good. The point is this. I technically made the cake. I did. I did. She didn't, she didn't help me. I technically made the cake. But I was only able to because Sarah was involved. Similarly, we are able to advance God's kingdom only insofar as God is involved. And we must believe he is involved. In some kind of symbolic way, we see what the disciples are capable of when relying on their own strength. And we also see what the disciples are capable of when they trust in Jesus' strength. And Jesus is giving them a new purpose as he calls them to do what he has intended for them to do all along. Jesus has told them on several occasions that he plans to make them fishers of men. It's only in this new resurrection hope where people are being made new that all of this is beginning to make sense. Jesus graciously invites us into doing this work with him. John Stott makes this point so well. As Jesus brings the disciples back to where it all began, Seeing it now through eyes which have been opened by the experience of the years with Jesus and above all by his death and resurrection, he calls them to reaffirm that first commitment and then go on with him in the power of the coming gift of the Holy Spirit for the remainder of their earthly pilgrimage. Now the potential snare for us here 
as we might be inclined to think too highly of ourselves in this task. Or worse, to think too low of God. If we believe that God's work will not be done apart from us, then we have thought too highly of ourselves and miss what God is doing. Jesus invites us into his work, and we ought to pursue that labor with all our might under Jesus' leading. But we should not wear the burden that God's kingdom won't be built without us. God is building his kingdom through his church, and he graciously invites us to be a part of it. But what does that mean for us now? I have two applications for us. First, it means that we embrace our failures and trust Jesus. As we've been saying, our fellowship with Jesus gives us the ability to embrace our failures. By embracing our failures and drawing near to Jesus, we are starting to walk in the reality that the resurrection is true. Peter knew that he could come to Jesus, but he needed to learn that he could also be rescued from all of his sin and humiliation at the feet of Jesus. Our response to this should be one of gratitude for Jesus' gracious fellowship with us. We show our gratitude when we trust him. By definition, God's grace is unmerited. I believe that our cultures do not do well with grace, which is why I think I, I struggled so much to embrace it. In college, I, I really grappled with this idea of God's grace. I thought I needed to do something to earn his favor. I mean, he's been so generous to me, I thought. So I felt a burden to reciprocate that generosity or to earn what I had received. Again, a fool's errand. I mean, that's how everything else in this world works, though. You have to earn it. But one night, my college Bible study leader explained grace to me in a way that I'll, I'll never forget. And contextually, it, it resonated so profoundly. I mean, a college student on a college campus, he said, Grace is like taking a test that you weren't prepared for that's worth 100% of your grade. But then the professor takes the test for you and grades it himself. That's grace. If you have never done this, if you've never been willing to admit your failures or believe that you could come to Jesus, what's still holding you back? You can receive this gracious gift of fellowship with Jesus. You can trust him and believe. He's made it so that whatever would keep you from him is taken care of. He's done it. Will you receive that? Number two, second application. It means that we pursue gospel intentionality. This is what I mean when I say we should pursue gospel intentionality. That we live as ordinary people seeking to do everyday things with Christian intentions. That means as we go watch sports with friends, as we do chores around the house, as, as we go and attend community events, as we invite people into our homes for meals, as we engage and care for people in our places of work, as we discipline our kids in public places, even though we feel embarrassed to do so, their intentions remain to commend Christ in all things to all people at all times. Now, that doesn't mean every word we speak is about Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're trying to do this game where we try to slip in Jesus. That, that is not what I'm saying. But it does mean that the way we think and interpret the world around us does speak to his work in our lives. 
We commend the work of Jesus by what we say and how we live. We want to talk about Jesus as we do things, minister to one another with the good news of the gospel, and share this resurrection hope with unbelievers. This is one way we can participate in the redeeming work God has so graciously invited us to. Tim Chester says that, that church is a meeting you church is not a meeting you attend or a building you enter. It's our identity, our community, our family. It's the context for the totality of the Christian life. We need a missions lifestyle in which we are always looking to build relationships and always looking to talk about Jesus. Let's love each other with gospel love and let's seek to love our unbelieving friends with this kind of missional intentionality. Let me give you an example of this and, and we'll close. A while back, I was, I was talking with a friend, some, someone from church who was trying to figure out what to do in his retirement. He eventually decided he, he would drive for Uber in his free time. Flexible hours, fun way to meet some interesting people, gets to drive a sweet car, normal stuff. What he has experienced from his time as an Uber driver is that sometimes you meet some lonely people. And sometimes you meet people who are very open about their lives, maybe, maybe too much so. And sometimes you meet people who are walking through very trying, very painful circumstances. And some of them don't even have anybody else to walk with them through that. In these moments, he has sought to be a caring friend with a listening ear. That's been his, his posture. And he's also strived to interpret the world around him as one who has been changed by Jesus and is continuing to be changed by Jesus. And that he can ask to pray for people and they'll say yes or no. He's been welcome to share at times his hope from a Christian perspective. And he's been able to invite people or at least to tell people about his church where he finds his loving community. That is ordinary Christianity with gospel intentionality. So let's strive, but let's do so together in Jesus' strength, listening to his voice. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we, as we bask in the glory of the resurrection, God, we, we believe that, that the resurrection is true, that we, we get to walk in this. We get to walk in this new reality that, that all the worst things about us are true, yes, but, but all the best things about Jesus are now true of us too because we have risen with you, God. You are doing this work in us. You are making us new. God, as, as, as you commission us out, as you send us, as you, as you walk with us, your church, as you lead us, as you continue to show us day by day, just as the sun rises, you, you are at work, God. That you are at work before us. You go before us. You lead us. God, that, that we would listen to your voice, that we would seek you, that we would pursue together in your strength and not ours. God, we repent of doing things in our strength, and we, we pray that we would strive yours. We would seek you. God, give us strength in Jesus' name. Amen.